Anyone still have a perfect bracket? No? Uh, mine was broken as of probably 12.20 on Thursday, and I am all in on the St. Peter's train. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, there's a basketball tournament happening right now. It's kind of a big deal. So that's all right. You don't have to worry about it. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that all of us here this morning have done something in common already, apart from gathering together at church this morning, that all of us have this morning taken a sip of water in some form and probably didn't even stop to think about it. I I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about uh, just how many options are available to us to be able to drink water from. Uh, Even thinking about just how many different options of bottled water are available to us. Uh, I I did a little dive this week to discover what what are some of the options that are out there just in water for us to drink. Uh, And what I found was a little bit surprising. So I'm going to give you a couple of the options that I came across this week. Uh, The first one you've probably seen uh, called Life Water. You can get it at your local Target or probably any gas station you stop at. Uh, And the tagline for it is Life Water is a premium bottled water that fuses creativity and design to serve as a source of inspiration as well as hydration. It costs uh, $2.19, give or take, for a 20-ounce bottle, uh, which averages out to about 11 cents an ounce. You might hear that and think, that's pretty expensive. That's a whole lot more expensive than the tap water at my house. Well, I found out that that's nothing compared to some of the options that are out there. Uh, This is Smeraldina water, uh, definitely mispronouncing that. It's bottled artesian water from the island of Sardinia, Italy. And the cost of it uh, in a case, this is according to Amazon, averages out to 21 cents an ounce or $4.20 for a 20-ounce bottle. Uh, Next, there is Sole mineral water. It says, get a taste of the Italian Alps with Sole, a light alternative to more densely carbonated sparkling waters. Case averages out to about 32 cents an ounce, or 6.40 for a 20-ounce bottle. Uh, the next one was one that I was actually tempted to buy because of how good it sounds. It's Berg Iceberg Water. It says, offering a crisp taste of freshly melted snow. This water is harvested directly from icebergs. I almost hit buy on Amazon, except for the fact that the case of it was $184, (laughs) which averages out to 60 cents an ounce, or $12 for a 20-ounce bottle, which is nothing compared to the final option that I came across. This is Bling H2O. (laughs) Uh, Bling water comes straight from the English mountain spring located at the base of the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee and goes through a nine-step purification process. It averages out to $1.58 an ounce or $31.60 for a 20-ounce bottle. That's some high-quality H2O. We thought we were fancy with our life water walking around. I mean, there, there are so many options to be able to drink water. The, the best figure I can come across with how many 
different bottled waters are out there, uh, was from 2012, and it was for the United States alone, and said so there's 195 different types of bottled water that are produced in the United States. Why so many different types of water to drink? Because to be human is to be thirsty. That every single day, everywhere we go, under every circumstance, we need to drink water. And we know that if we don't drink, things will soon go wrong. To be human is to be thirsty. And not just for water, because thirst has long been used as this metaphor for, for some of the type of deep longings that we have as human beings, for joy and meaning and satisfaction and more. That we have a thirst for things that ultimately nothing in this world quite satisfies. Called a spiritual thirst, a thirst for paradise, a thirst for transcendence, whatever it might be, that we have this thirst for something more. And at the cross, we discover a source from which we can come and drink deeply and be satisfied. That we're going to see this morning that Jesus suffered so that we can be satisfied in him. We're going to look at John 19, 28 through 30, if you want to open up there this morning. Uh, We've been going through this series on the last words of Jesus Uh, And this morning, we're actually going to read the fifth and sixth saying, but just look at the fifth saying. Uh, Pastor Joel is going to preach on the sixth saying in a couple weeks. And so John 19, starting in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Father, we come to you this morning, uh, some of us coming tired and weary because we had long weeks, or sick kids, or difficult circumstances, and we look to you for strength. Some of us coming lonely, and we look to you for love and comfort. Some of us coming uh, just wondering where you're at and what you're up to, and we, we look to you to draw near to us, to comfort us. God, we we come and we want to be reminded that your steadfast love is better than life. And so we can find you to be deeply satisfying no matter what may be happening in our lives at the current moment. And I pray that that would be the case for us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As, As we've been going through this series on the sayings of Jesus... We've been finding that their sayings are very short, just a couple words or a sentence long, but that these sayings are jam-packed, full of meaning. 
As Jesus dies, he's giving us a window into his heart and a window into what he's doing and what he's accomplishing on the cross for us. And so with each saying, we've been trying to get into, okay, what is some of the meaning here of why does Jesus say this while he's dying on the cross for us? And we see that over and over again, what, what appears to be a cause for despair, someone suffering, dying innocently, thirsting, bearing the wrath of God, actually ends up being a cause of great hope and delight for us through faith in him. And this morning, the words are no different. I thirst. Words that we could easily just read over, gloss over, but if we stop and meditate on them and and let them sink down, we might find they're full of meaning, hoping us to better grasp Christ's love and what he offers us from the cross. And so this morning we want to look at these words and we're going to look at them in some ways through the lens of what the Bible says about thirst. So we're going to focus on these words but also have a broader lens of what the Bible says about thirst. And with that context, we might see first of all that because Jesus suffered as one of us, we can drink deeply of his sympathy. There's no other saying on the cross that demonstrates the full humanity of Jesus quite like this one. Because thirst in the Bible, first of all, is just a way of expressing that we've got this need as humans for water. And if it goes on met, it means we suffer and and we long for it to be met. And so we can look at a passage like Exodus 17.3, talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. It says, but the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? To be thirsty is to be human. And so let's stop and wonder at this. The son of God was thirsty. Like the one who spoke all the waters of the world into existence now speaks and asks for just a cup of water. The the one who holds all the waters in the world, 326 million trillion gallons of water in his hands, now cries out for a sip of water. That the one who spoke to the winds and the waves and the rain and says, be still, and they listen, now gas for just a drop of water. I mean, how can that be? Because Jesus is perfectly, fully, 100%, completely human. Fully God, fully man, in one person. It's been said of modern evangelicals, which is what we fall under, that that we don't tend to have as much problem with seeing Jesus as fully God. But we often maybe have more difficulty with really seeing him as fully man. That there's something that's difficult to us about saying he really got tired. He really got hungry. He really thirsted. He really bled. 
that there's something almost difficult for us to grasp that and comprehend that. But, but this truth should not be something we avoid or run from or just gloss over. This is a doctrine for us to rejoice in and to find comfort in. Because Jesus suffered, there is no suffering we face that he did not experience himself. I love how a person named Michael Kruger puts it. He says, Jesus is the son of God, eternal, divine, glorious. But can he relate to me? And the answer on the cross is yes. Because there's no range of emotion we feel that he did not himself feel. That there's no suffering we walk through that he didn't walk through himself. That there's no temptation we face that he didn't face in some way. That because Jesus is fully man, he gets us. There's been a recent TV commercial push to show how Jesus relates to us. And if you've watched March Madness, it's likely you've maybe even seen one of these commercials. And the title of the push is simply, He Gets Us. He gets our loneliness. He gets our anxiety. He gets our weakness because he's one of us. And and isn't this what we long for? To have someone who won't brush us off, but will look us in the eyes and say, I know what that's like. I mean, just think about every, every time that there's an election that comes around, you see hopeful politicians playing on this in some ways. I'm sure you've seen it over and over again. Where in, in this area, you're kind of familiar with someone essentially putting out there, I'm a hardworking, family-oriented, truck-loving, son of a third-generation farmer, love football, I'm one of you, right? This kind of backfired on a presidential candidate in the 2000s when he was asked, do you like NASCAR and football? Are you one of us? Do you like NASCAR and football? He said, yeah, I like them. I know some owners of NASCAR teams and some owners of football teams. And people jumped on him and were like, no one else, does. you don't get us. You don't get us. Jesus gets us fully and completely. He he knows, he doesn't just understand pain because he made the human body. He understands pain because he had nails driven through his hands. He, He doesn't just get water because he made all the waters. He gets water because he got dehydrated and he thirsted. He he doesn't just see us in our loneliness or when we feel rejected. He was lonely and fully rejected by his friends. I mean, he he knows what it's like to feel hungry. He knows what it's like to feel tired because you didn't sleep. He knows what it's like to see the death of a friend. He knows what it's like to face death himself. Everything we face, he gets us. And so the fact that Jesus is fully human is not simply a doctrine for us to believe, but it's actually of great comfort to us. There's no support we need that he cannot offer to us. 
This is what Hebrews 4.15 picks up on. If you look at Hebrews 4.15, it's talking about the fact that Jesus as our high priest is someone we can run to with every need and find grace and mercy and support. And then Hebrews 4.15 explains why. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I just want to highlight the first part of that verse this morning for us. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is fully able to sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, we might read that and we might just think, well, okay, so Jesus pities us when we suffer. But that's not what it's saying. That, that word sympathize there is used only two times in the New Testament, both times in Hebrews. And it means something like solidarity and suffering. So when it's used again in Hebrews 10.34, it talks about the Hebrew people or the people of Hebrews and says, you had sympathy and compassion on your fellow Christians who were in prison because you were willing to suffer yourself and lose your property by going to visit them. It's talking about the type of sympathy that comes when we feel someone else's pain and even suffer with them. I tend to be one of those parents, don't judge me on this, one of those parents who when I see my son fall, I overreact. Maybe there are some other parents out there like that. Where, where I see him get hurt, and immediately uh, I, I rise to a level that's on the verge of freaking out. And, and my wife makes fun of me because she's far more calm and cool-headed in those scenarios. But if you're a parent, you know there's something about seeing your children, your child, hurt and suffering that evokes a response in you that isn't evoked in any other situation. Do you realize that that's the same type of response that's evoked in Jesus' very heart when you suffer and face sorrow and pain? That that's what it means for him to be human. That that's what it means for him to be a high priest that can fully sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Dane Ortland says, our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink farther into pain, we sink farther into felt isolation. The Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. I mean, isn't this what we long for when we struggle and suffer? Someone who will look us in the eyes, who will say, I know what that's like because I walk through it myself and that he can then help us walk through it. I mean, sometimes we can find that in another person, but not always. And we can always find that in Jesus. It's interesting that the verse that it seems like Jesus is quoting here when he says, I thirst, is from Psalm 69, 21 where it says this, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. But here's the words that come right before that. I looked for pity, but there was none. 
and for comforters, but I found none. When Jesus looked for comfort on the cross, there was no one to sympathize and comfort him. But when we look for comfort in our sorrow and suffering, there is always one to comfort us and sympathize with us now. We should take all our sorrows to Jesus and find his heart to be sympathetic. I mean, what, when you, just stop and think, where do you run first? Where do we run first when we face difficulty, frustration, sorrow, pain? Do you run first to other people and attempt to get them to feel for you? Not that that's a bad thing and not that we shouldn't do that, but is that where we run first? Or do we run first to the one who gets us fully and completely and can sympathize and comfort us in every sorrow and weakness? Other people tend to let us down at times. Sometimes they brush us off. Sometimes they stare at us with a blank face that says they don't really get what we're facing. And sometimes they say insensitive words that make it worse. I know because of the insensitive words that I've said sometimes. Jesus will never look at you with a blank face that says, I don't get what you're dealing with. He will never brush you off. He will never say things that will make it worse. He will never look at you and say, what's wrong with you? Just get it together. He will always sympathize with you. What an incredible savior he is. Take every last sorrow to him because he suffered. We can drink deeply of his sympathy. And because he was cursed, because Jesus was cursed, we can drink deeply of his gifts. When, when Jesus cries out, I thirst on the cross, John tells us he's fulfilling scripture. So it seems like he's quoting Psalm 69, 21, which we just referenced, as well as some of Psalm 22, which we talked about last week. And both of those Psalms are the words of an innocent sufferer facing the curse and reproach of enemies. But, but I think the meaning of it sinks even deeper than that. Because if you look at the word thirst and how it's used throughout the scriptures, one of the ways that it's used is to refer to God's judgment and curse on sin. And so we, we could look at a Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48, where God is warning the Israelites as they go into the promised land, don't serve other idols. Don't chase after other idols. Don't forsake me. And says, here's what's going to happen if you do. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. Doesn't that last line describe Jesus perfectly on the cross? Or or we could look at Isaiah 5.13, where God warns the Israelites as he's going to send them into exile. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. By drawing attention to the fact that he is thirsting on the cross, Jesus is once again reminding us that he is taking our place. We keep coming back to this again and again and again in the series because this is the heart of the cross. Jesus dies for us in our place. He 
drinks or he drank the curse for our sin. What's interesting is there seems to be an echo of what Jesus says on the cross in Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. And at the end of the story, we find Lazarus ends up in heaven and this rich man ends up in hell. And and the rich man's words that we find there are this. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. And so when Jesus says, I thirst on the cross, part of what I think we're supposed to see is he is literally going through hell for us. Literally going through hell for us on the cross. We simply can't look at the cross. And I know we've said this before. We have to keep going back to it. We can't look at the cross without saying, that's what I deserve for sin. Which should then lead us to rejoice when we say, that's what Jesus took on for me instead. Jesus drinks our curse, drinks it completely. He drinks down hell for us. And as a result, we can drink the gifts of his blessing. In response to Jesus' thirst on the cross, what does it say uh, the soldiers give him? It says they give him some sour wine, which is likely a term for, for almost a vinegar type of wine. Do you know the only other place in John's gospel where he mentions wine? It's in reference to Jesus turning water into wine his first miracle, where he turns water into wine at a wedding, which is meant to convey that Jesus comes to bring joy and blessing because the Old Testament background, wine was often a sign of joy and God's blessing, like a Psalm 104.15 or Proverbs 3.10. Jesus bursts onto the scene in John by doing a miracle, to provide good wine, joy, blessing to people at a wedding. And then John says one of the last things he does before he dies is to drink sour wine. It's as if John is saying to us, Jesus drinks the bad stuff so we can drink the good stuff. Jesus drinks the sour wine so we can drink the good wine. He drinks the curse so we can drink the blessing. Charles Spurgeon says, oh my dear friends, if we had our due, we should have none of the comforts of life. The very air would refuse to yield us breath and the bread, the stuff of life to yield us nourishment. The cry, I thirst, is part of the substitutionary work which Christ performed when he thirsted because otherwise... Sinners would have thirsted forever and have been denied all the pleasure and joy and peace of heaven. And we might add to that of earth as well. If we got what we deserved, we would never even drink another cup of cold water. But because Jesus gets what we deserve, every glass of water and every single other good gift we experience in this life is a blood-bought gift from him purchased at the cross.
I mean, do, do we really believe that? Do, do we look at all the good we have in this life or all the good we might experience and believe that? Or do we just gloss over it as if it's a fact of life? Or, or even think, I deserve it. I mean, that, that cup of water, that meal you're looking forward to after church today, that nap you're going to take this afternoon, that game of March Madness you're going to watch later, that weekend at the cabin you're looking forward to next week, that Saturday morning sleeping in and having pancakes with your family, and every other good thing we receive is a blood-bought gift from Jesus that we get because he took our curse on himself. We should trace all our gifts to Jesus and find him to be abundantly good. Like, let this lead us to be more content with what we have, seeing everything we do have as a good and gracious gift from God, rather than being so consumed with all the good we don't think we have. Let let this lead us to slow down at times and enjoy some of the good, simple things God gives us, rather than grinding out each day trying to gain more in this life. I mean, just think about it in this way. When you recognize that you're about to enjoy something that's expensive, don't you slow down and savor it? Like, if I ever eat filet mignon, I eat it a whole lot slower than I eat an Oscar Mayer hot dog. You do too. Why? Because filet mignon, every bite is expensive. If I ever get my hands on Bling H2O, (laughs) you better believe I'm going to drink that a whole lot slower than the tap water out of our spigot. See, we instinctively slow down when we realize what we enjoy costs. So how much more should there be times where we slow down and enjoy that egg sandwich? Enjoy that hug from a family member. Enjoy that nap or what anything else and reflect on it was purchased for me by Jesus at the cross, along with my salvation and everything else. And let this lead us then to become more adoring and worshipful of the God who gives us these good gifts. This is part of what C.S. Lewis learned as he reflected on the gifts and pleasures we have in this life. He says this, pleasures are shafts of glory as it strikes our sensibility. I have tried to take every pleasure and make it into a channel of adoration. I don't mean simply by giving thanks for it. One must, of course, give thanks, but I mean something different. Gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far-off and momentary beams or gifts are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the scene, or to the sun. Take our gifts, and we run back up the sunbeam, and we think, how great must the God be who died to drink our curse so that we might drink freely of his blessing and his gifts. And then we can see this as well. 
that because Jesus was thirsty, we can drink deeply of him and be satisfied. All the good gifts we receive in this life never ultimately satisfies. They, they leave us still longing for more. That there is a thirst that nothing in this world can satisfy. And there's lots of ways we come to know this or recognize this. I mean, it might be in seeing famous people who get all they want and are still miserable. It, it might be just in us having something we really look forward to and then it never quite lives up to our expectations and so we're left looking forward to the next thing. Or it might just be in realizing that despite all we gain and have, it's never quite enough. I mean, whether we realize it or not, every single human being cries out, I thirst. And then apart from God, tries to quench that thirst with things that don't ultimately satisfy. Whether that's vacations, whether that's accumulating wealth, whether that's climbing the corporate ladder, whether that's trying to find the perfect family, whether that's just trying to enjoy as much pleasure as possible in this world, or whether it's being really good and religious apart from Jesus. But there are so many ways we try to quench that thirst, but we're left saying it doesn't quite satisfy. Like we're, we're like people in a sea of salt water that gulp down another drink of salt water, but it never quite satisfies and leaves us thirsty for more. This is where Christianity is so different from the kind of secular bent of our world because it dares to say we were made for something more than this world. We were made for more than just this lifetime. We were, we were made for something outside this world to know and enjoy God. And apart from that, we will never find satisfaction. But Jesus opens the way for us or for every thirst to be satisfied in him. When Jesus says, I thirst on the cross, he's opening up the well for us to come and drink. Two, two other times in John, Jesus refers to himself as living water. John 4, 14 through 15, and John 7, 37. And he's saying, I'm the good stuff. I'm the one who can satisfy you. And so when he says, I thirst on the cross, he's saying, the well is open. And now you can come and drink deeply of me and be satisfied. Imagine just for a second, if I told you that there is a gas station down the road that's selling gas for 99 cents a gallon right now, I would be willing to bet every single one of us would be there in the next day, if not today, if not right after church, if not right now, jumping up and leaving and going there. Because that's an incredible offer. That's an incredible deal, right? We, we live in Lancaster County. We like our deals. Jesus is saying that there is a water, a living, life-giving, soul-quenching water available in him that is utterly and completely free. We come with our thirst and drink deeply of him and are satisfied. That, that's the message we believe. That's what we proclaim. 
That's why Revelation 22, the last chapter in the Bible, says these words, And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Take all your thirst to Jesus and find him to be satisfying. Here's here's why I think we get this wrong sometimes as Christians, though. That we, we think Jesus satisfies me. Yes, I know that. But maybe we think just kind of one drink of him is enough. Right? Like I believed in Jesus in the past. He kind of quenched my thirst. And that's enough to continue to quench my thirst today. Right now in this moment. As if sometime in the past where we thirsted and he satisfied us is enough for now today's thirst. But, but the reality is the more satisfying something is, the more we want to go back to it again and again and again and have more. Just stop and think about what, what's your favorite food or drink? Do you have it in your mind? I would guess you don't have that and think, that was so good, I don't ever want to have it again. Right? You eat your fill, you drink your fill, and then you wake up the next day thinking, man, I could really go for more of that. My, my favorite food is smoked pulled pork. A- and every Tuesday at our house, I'm on for dinner. And almost every single week, my wife will ask me at the beginning of the week, hey, Kyle, what do you want to make for dinner on Tuesday? And the first thought every single time that jumps into my mind is smoked pulled pork. Because I'm not content with last week's pulled pork. I want it again and again and again. And that's the view we should have of Jesus satisfying our thirst. The the better and more satisfying we find him to be, the more it should propel us back again and again and again to drink deeply of him. And the more that we do, the more that we show how great and worthy he is as he continues to satisfy us. We, we can't be content with yesterday's love, yesterday's mercy, yesterday's peace, yesterday's grace in Christ. Because we need more today. And we need to go back to Jesus again and again and again and saying, Jesus, I'm thirsty. I need you to satisfy me. I'm thirsty today. Jesus, I need your love more than anything else. I need your peace. I need your comfort. I need your wisdom. I need you. And because you thirsted for me on the cross, I can drink deeply of you and be satisfied. Where are you thirsty in your life right now? Run to Jesus, the one who literally is living water. Drink deeply of him and find him to be enough and to be satisfying for your soul. Let's pray. God, our prayer is we are like the deer that pants as we run through the woods for streams of water, longing for water to drink. And at the cross, you've shown us where the well is. You've shown us that we can come to Jesus over and over and over again and drink 
deeply of his love, of his comfort, of his peace, of his joy, and be satisfied. So God, our prayer is again this morning, satisfy us with your love. Show us that your steadfast love in Christ is better than life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.